Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Muna Abdi, and in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Olashoga, a senior lecturer in psychology at Sheffield Helm University and an associate professor at Inland Norway University of Applied Sciences. His current research focuses on stress, burnout, and well-being in sport, with a particular interest in high-performance environments and elite coaching. In addition to this, Dr. Olashoga is a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Society and an active sports psychology consultant, and also the host of 80% Mental Podcast that you really should be checking out after this episode. This is our final episode for season one, and it really is an honour to have Dr. Olashoga with us. We will be recapping some of the conversations we've been having over the last year on the podcast and really taking a moment to reflect and think about where we need to be moving forward from here. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a long time coming. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into the conversation with you. No, thank you for inviting me. Um, I've, I've listened to uh, to some of the episodes of the podcast before. And I have to say as well that your intro music is probably the coolest podcast intro music that I've thank heard. Thank you. Um, it, it took a while to find the right one. I'll be <laughs> honest with you, because we had to go with something that went with a vibe. We got there yeah. in the end, but thank you. No, so, I like it. So what I wanted to have a chat with you today, and we can go into so much because I think you and me just... First of all, we we spend a lot of time on Twitter. Probably too much time. <laughs> Probably a bit too much time. So we can get we can get into that a little bit later. But we both work specifically on issues to do with race and racism. We've both been very vocal over the last year about what has been working and what hasn't been working, mm-hmm. sort of nationally in the conversations that have been happening. So because this is the last episode of the season, I really wanted to just have an opportunity to just think back to the last year and see how far along we've gone as a nation but mm. also really locally within the city that we're in um in this work so this all started a year and a half ago it started with the murder of george floyd it started with the um the protests on with black lives matters and it started in the midst of covid yeah that's a lot <laughs> there's a lot going on at the same time Absolutely. What what did that feel like from your perspective? Because you working in an institution, suddenly having to work from home because COVID has happened, seeing that on on your TV screen, and it's something that you can't ever unsee, mm-hmm. and then seeing the outpouring um, coming from people afterwards. What was what was that like? Um, I'm not going to lie. It was it was a difficult time. Um, I mean, first of all it was a disrupted year anyway. Like you said, we were, you know, working at home from COVID in a situation that nobody knew what was really going on or how long it was going to last. Before that, we'd been on strike for a while as well at the university. So the whole year was just really disrupted. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really difficult time. I haven't, I, I didn't watch the video at the time and I still haven't watched it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't need to. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen the still photographs. I've read the descriptions. I don't need to watch somebody being essentially lynched. Mm. You know, I, I don't need that in my life. Um, but it was really difficult. And I think the thing that was different was because it was it happened during the pandemic. 
you know, it's not like this is a new thing. Yeah. It's not like we haven't seen police brutality against black people before and police, mm. you know, literally murdering black people before. Yeah. Um, it's happened so many times and I could reel off a list of names. But um, I think that, that the pandemic kind of held everybody still for that yeah. few months and people were forced almost to engage with this in a way that they maybe hadn't before with mm. Philando Castile, with Eric Garner, you know, mm. again, reel off this whole list of, of, of people. Um, but because we were sort of held still and life was just put on pause, normally we get distracted by, okay, well, that's happened. Now I need to go to work or now I need to go and wash the car or whatever it is. Yeah. But we, we couldn't do that. We were sort of forced to confront it. And, and I think people were confronted with this in a way that they just hadn't been before. Um, so it just became this huge, huge topic of conversation all of a sudden in a way that it hadn't been. Mm. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, we've been here before. We've seen this before. This has happened like hundreds of times before. And everyone's like, oh, wow, this is new. You know, police brutality, isn't it? Isn't it bad? I'm like, yes, yes, it is. Thank you for finally noticing. Um, yeah. Yeah, really, really difficult. And, and, and I think, you know, it's, we shouldn't underestimate the trauma involved in, mm. in seeing that and seeing those videos and seeing those things pop up on your timeline time and time and time again. Um, so yeah, yeah a, a sort of difficult period uh, yeah. last year, definitely. Absolutely, and I agree with you. I feel like it was a split between, nationally, those that are racialized as white having some sort of awakening because mm. they there was no choice. You're at home, there's less distractions. It's on your screen. People are talking about it. Um, organizations are being forced to make a statement um, and again it's the idea of there's pressure to do this and then alongside that you've got a resurfacing of trauma mm. by those that are racialized as black by, by people of color who are not only just seeing this and experiencing the trauma of seeing it over and over again but being told to being asked to educate peers on what their experiences are and then going into spaces where They've been saying this over and over again, and they're thinking, I've already told you, what difference is it going to make this time? And so there's a level of hopelessness, I think, that at the start of this, I sense from many of the Black people that I spoke to about whether or not change could happen as a result of Black Lives Matters, as a result of the, 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 the rage that people were displaying in, in the aftermath of, of George Floyd. But then there was a really unusual level of hopefulness um, and commitment or seemingly commitment um, being demonstrated by those racialized as white in a way that I have never seen before um, in that scale. And again, for me at the beginning, I, I didn't I couldn't sense what was performance and what wasn't because I was just really enthused by the, the momentum. And the fact that there was like overt willingness to do this work. And then we go into COVID lockdown two, lockdown three. And then we go into organizations that have released these statements and said, we're, we're committed to engaging in anti-racism work. And then we come through the year. And have you seen any of those commitments translate into action any of that outcry that you saw at the start of the year translate into to change in the circles that you're a part of um i mean in in very very minor ways um i mean first of all i think you're absolutely right it was it felt different mm. you know it felt different to me because 
like you say, there was a sort of outpouring of, of support. And a lot of my colleagues in sport, my colleagues in sports psychology reached out to me. And again, this is part of that whole exhaustion thing, you know, the emotional exhaustion, the emotional labor, but it was, it was difficult to have to deal with that. But at the same time, it was encouraging because people were reaching out saying like, you know, what can I read? Uh, what can I do? You know, I've, I've had this experience before and I'm suddenly reflecting on it and, you know, I don't want to put the burden on you, but also you seem like a good person to talk to. So I'm going to ask you about it. And and it was really, it was, it was exhausting, but it was encouraging. Um, mm. So I, 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 I totally agree with you there. There was this sort of outpouring that we hadn't seen before. Has that translated into meaningful action? Well, like you say, you know, I, I spend quite a lot of time on Twitter and I've, I've called out my colleagues a number of times mm. in the last year saying, look, your silence on issues and matters that have cropped up is, is really telling. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not expecting people to jump in and, and, and solve the world's problems. But when you come to me and say, like, what can I do? How can I help? How can I, you know, be a better ally? What, you know, whether you like the word ally or not, um, you know, how can I like make a difference? And you say, okay, well, you can do this, 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 and this. Here's a couple of things that you can do. And then for the rest of the year, all of those people have just sort of disappeared and shrunk back into their own little bubble. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in, in, in kind of minor ways, people have, have sort of reached out and tried to do things you know i've had colleagues at work talk about okay well how can we um how can we work better to decolonize the curriculum um well i don't know i'm not an expert (laughs) don't don't ask me um but you know in in small ways but in in the grand scheme of things i i I feel like organizations are really good at issuing statements Mm. really really good at issuing statements we abhor racism we don't tolerate racism in any of its forms whatever that means um but then actually on the ground action yeah. is a lot slower to emerge if, yeah. if ever really. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And we've seen that time and time again with people saying my organization released a statement and nothing happened as a result of it, mm. or um, even worse, they are engaging with work, but they're engaging in it in really problematic ways. So things like we're doing work on decolonizing the curriculum, but we're not doing any work on looking at white privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not doing any of the meaningful work of thinking about who is bringing the curriculum to life. How mm-hmm. do we work with our educators and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it's again the burden of responsibility being placed on people of colour to, to lead this work, whether that is leading in holding organisations and colleagues to account, like you yeah. said, um, in educating and sharing the resources, um, in co- constantly being in those spaces where work is being done wrong and having to be that voice to say, no, you didn't get wrong. Hmm. No, you need to do it in this way. You need to do it in that way. How do we place that burden of responsibility on our allies or encourage our allies to, to move this work forward without us needing to sort of stand behind them and sort of push them in the right direction, which is just what I feel like we've been doing over the last year is giving them the small incremental nudges, um, words of encouragement, points in the right direction, etc. How do we take a step back and focus on recovering from our own trauma mm-hmm. and allow allies to move this work forward? It's it's a really difficult question because you know I I feel like that's what we should be doing, but I also feel like I have a almost 
like almost a moral responsibility mm. to to I guess to help like mm-hmm. if people ask me for help if people kind of ask me to help them understand something a little bit better like yeah. I part of me wants to say Google is 100% free mm. but part of me also wants to say okay well actually you know like, like here's a good resource you can use here's a good book let's sit down and have a conversation about this yeah. so it's it's really hard to let go almost and say well actually mm. no you you need to kind of take this forward yeah. and just leave me out of it I think it is about much more than reading yeah and, and 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 finding out about the resource so I agree with you it's I'm not saying we should be out of this work because we're we're always going to be a part of the work we have hmm. to be but I think for me the, the question I always have is what is our responsibility to our allies in terms of the support that we offer, in terms of giving them insight into those nuances that they just may not have um, because of their positionality. But when does that responsibility in terms of action then shift towards them in terms of taking that knowledge and translating it into action without us needing to direct where that action needs to go and when it needs to happen? I think I'm thinking more of a, a case of we're scaffolding. Again, the educator room is popping out. (laughs) <laughs> we're, we're scaffolding them to the knowledge that they need to have, the racial mm-hmm. literacy that they need to have in order to engage with this work. Yeah. But then we're also walking alongside them in terms of the action yeah. at a greater cost to us than it is to the allies. And so there is still an imbalance. Yeah, absolutely. I think I have to, I have to take a step back from that. I think one of the things that, um, that or some of the work that, that generally falls to people of color is the the, the challenging of what I call the eye rolling. Mm. And so it's not just about, you know, allies taking the work forward, but it's also about them being the ones who will challenge the eye rolling. So I sit in meetings and when we talk, okay, right, we're going to talk about decolonizing the curriculum. We're going to talk about the, and I'm using speech marks here for everyone who's mm-hmm. listening, the BAME attainment gap. We're going to talk about these things. And like, I look around the room and I see my colleagues just eye rolling and, oh God, not racism again. We're going to talk about racism. Why do we have to always talk about this? You know, and I, I don't want to be the person in the room that has to always challenge that yeah. or point that out or even be in the room where that's happening. Yeah. Um, so that's part of, um, I think that's part of the work that I often see is, is missed. Mm. I suppose by you know the allies that you're talking about the people who are taking this work forward Um, yeah the stepping into those uncomfortable moments right yeah being prepared to be really uncomfortable with that stuff and to 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 really take on the burden Mm. you know it's not just about saviorism is it it's not just about I'm going to come along and I'm going to take on you know the burden of dismantling racism in this institution um you know, you have to deal with all of the uncomfortable stuff that goes along with that as well. Exactly. Absolutely. I think the key thing that you said there is being able to do that when we're not in the room. Hmm. Because it's one thing responding when you see people of colour in the room and then it's another doing the work even when those individuals are not in that space as well. And I think Hmm. that for me is when you get a real test of allyship, is if the work is happening even when you're not there. Tell me a little bit about your work at the university, because I know that you've been pushing this conversation forward. How has how has that gone? How has that been received? Um, so, what can I say without getting myself fired? Um, no, just kidding. 
so so it kind of started for me because I, I suppose I sort of sailed along under the radar for for a long time when I was at, at Alum and I guess working in sports as well um I I, I kind of I guess I got a pass from from racism I don't know um but it was it, it started in March of 2020 when there was um I found a whiteboard rubber in one of my classrooms with the n-word scrawled on it and whether or not that was aimed specifically at me, I have no idea. I, I doubt very much it was because it was a kind of pool classroom. Um, but the point is that it, whether or not it was specifically aimed at me, it was aimed at me because I found it and it, you know, it's a racial slur written on something in my, in my classroom. So it kind of started with that. Um, but first of all, I'm glad that I found it and not one of my students. Yeah. Um, but it opened up a whole... Um, I suppose it opened up to me the fact that the systems in place for dealing with those types of things were entirely inadequate, like entirely inadequate. So I kind of found this. And first of all, I'm like, well, what, what do I even do? Like, I don't even know what to do with this. Um, so I mentioned it to my uh, line manager and that conversation again, wasn't massively productive, but it sort of got escalated, escalated up and escalated up. And um, essentially, they sent someone from HR to come and speak to me. They sent the only brown person in the entire senior management to the university to come and, come and speak to me, as if that would somehow placate me. Um, I don't know, yeah. somebody who would understand what I was talking about. Um, but, you know, it, it, it didn't go very far. The university released a statement Again, good at releasing statements. We abhor racism in all of its forms and discrimination in all of its forms, like yada, yada. Um, and, and, and that was about as far as it went, really. Nothing much happened. Again, the pandemic sort of got in the way, really, because everyone shut down, had to go home. Um, but that was sort of the incident that, that kind of sparked off my involvement in really sort of pushing this stuff um, mm. at, the, at the university. And... Um, yeah, it's. A, I was had a conversation last week. Um, I gave a, a talk on on white normativity and navigating white normativity as a, as a person of color in, in higher education. Um, and and one of the questions was, you know, are you optimistic about organisations, you know, making these promises and, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, following through on these promises to tackle racism. And my answer was, well, I, I don't really know what I've got to be optimistic about. Like, mm -hmm. is there any evidence that I should be optimistic? Because, you know, I, I have no idea what my organization is doing. I have absolutely no idea what steps they've taken, what, what, what you know, actual actions have happened in the last year. So either they're not doing anything or they're not really communicating that. Mm -hmm. um, and either way, that's, that's pretty disheartening, I think especially given the year that we've had and all of the things that have happened during that year. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been such a, a reoccurring narrative from professionals of colour in all sectors who have said there has been a statement that has been released. There mm. may or may not be work that is taking place, but nothing's been communicated to us. We don't know what is happening and what's not happening. The only thing that we can still sort of create a reality from is the mm. impact of what we experience within those organizations and the impact remains the same yeah 
the, the mean, systems don't work, the, the practices remain the same, the culture within that organisation remains the same. And so even if the work is happening, how effectively is that work happening if, if the change isn't apparent? Exactly, yeah. And uh, the only reason that anybody even knew about that whole incident was because I wrote about it in the press. Like, mm -hmm. if I hadn't done that, it would have just been completely buried. You know, And it's not the first instance of racism at well, either of the two Sheffield universities. There's been a whole host of, of racist incidents. Yeah. And it's almost like we're afraid to admit that they're, they're going on. Like the institutions yeah. are, are terrified of saying, of even admitting that it, like it's a problem. Um, and it's not just ours. Yeah. It's not just in Sheffield either. There was the incident in, uh, I think, in Nottingham. Was it Nottingham or Nottingham Trent? Nottingham um, Trent. Nottingham Trent, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is a problem in higher education. Unless we are willing to say, look, this is happening, and this is specifically what we are doing to address it, um, then the problem is going to continue. If it's just a case of, oh, yeah, we don't tolerate racism. It's like, well, clearly you do, because it's an ongoing problem. Absolutely. And the, and the biggest worry is, and I think this is the case, again, with, not just with Haiti, but with, across a number of different sectors, is the, the reality of the lived experience of racism is not as visible as mm. the performance of sort of corporate solidarity. And, and it's, that's really worrying that an organisation can present itself to be inclusive, um, be liberal, have um, values that are around equality and justice, etc. But then the lived reality of that on an everyday basis within the organisation isn't given the same visibility as what is portrayed in those, in those statements. And so both of those two universities I was an alumnus of, I've worked at, at both of those two universities and I agree with you. It's not just the two of us, many academics, many students have said there are inherently racist practices at both of those two institutions. The problem is there hasn't been any public statement from either of those two universities to acknowledge those realities. And I think even in the statement that was produced after Black Lives Matters, it was a sort of a... Um, affirmation of our intent this is what we intend the, these are our values but there wasn't an acknowledgement of the reality of people of color within those universities and I think what I always implore all universities and all organizations to do is make it clear how people experience your organization as a starting point so that you know where, where the work needs to happen if you're not willing to acknowledge how that space is being experienced who are you doing this work for? And I think a lot of universities in particular, the work is outward facing. It's how do we make our peers and the wider sector see that we are doing good work as opposed to our community within mm. the school, within the, within the university, the students, the staff, the, the professionals that we work with. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like any more of a cynic than I actually am. <laughs> but there's a there's a bottom line, isn't there? And you know we see this with the um, the Athena Swan initiative as well, don't we? It's and and the uh, the kind of race equality. Chart. These are you know that they're all very lovely and noble, but they're also just kind of check marks, aren't they? Look mm -hmm. at what we are doing. Well, exactly like you say, it's very outward facing, yeah. Without actually really tackling the day to day experience of mm. uh, those those kind of minorities or, or, or marginalized uh, groups. Yeah. So if, if Athena Swan have, runs the risk of organisations falling into sort of these patterns, what do you think of the, the race equality charter? How effective do you think, not just the race equality charter, but 
all of the sort of charters and, and awards that are in place for a number of different sectors that are around doing yeah. something in order to get a badge or to get recognition in some way. How effective are those? Um, I, uh, I, I, I don't, I, I feel sort of similarly, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I feel that they are ways for institutions to be able to say to everybody else, look at what we've got. Aren't we great? This is what mm-hmm. we've done. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't work going on that is beneficial. I'm not saying that they they don't perhaps drive people to make changes, mm-hmm. to make you know important changes. Um, but I would just go back to what I said before. That I, I don't really know what those changes actually are. You know, mm-hmm. if we, if this is something that's so important, again, somebody asked me the other day. Um, you know, despite our best efforts, our senior leadership team is all white. Mm-hmm. And you know, my, my response to that was, well, that doesn't really sound like your best efforts. Mm. you know because like black people people of color exist they exist within the institution they exist outside the institution if your senior leadership team after all of this effort that you're saying that you're putting in is still all white either people of color don't want to come and work for you yeah let's look at why that is Mm -hmm. or you're not actually putting your best efforts in to recruit and um uh you know recruit from within Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and support people within the organization to rise to those positions. Yeah. So either way, there's something going on there. Um, yeah. You know, if this is something that's really important to you, like say the race equality charter and, and kind of all these kite mark type things, mm-hmm. you know, if those things are really important to institutions, then you would be like, I don't, I don't know how to describe it again without getting myself fired, but you would mm-hmm. be doing these, you know, actual proper work in that respect yeah. um, rather than just this, this sort of performative you know look at look at what we're doing you know the the, the mm-hmm. attainment gap thing as well yeah uh, I was looking at that awesome. before we before we came on and the last sort of three three years I think mm-hmm. it's just remained absolutely steady there's been no improvement whatsoever and I yeah. remember talking about this in team meetings three years ago yeah so not, nothing's changed so mm-hmm. if nothing's changed, either it's not really our best efforts or what we're doing is we're saying, here's all of the things that we are doing to try and uh, narrow that gap. And let's not get you know, the whole conversation around there about the attainment gap anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's some things that we're doing. Here's some things that we're doing. Okay, well, what are the results? Well, don't worry about that. Look at all the things that we're doing. Like, yeah. Look at this shiny thing over here. <laughs> Um, yeah. So that that that's kind of how I feel about some of those things. Like I say, it's not it's not that there's no good work happening. Um, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, it's just that the the emphasis seems to be more about you know look at these shiny things, keep your keep your attention here. Mm. Um, this is what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm always telling people whenever we do work around anti-racism is it's not about the intention; it's about the impact, and we don't pay enough attention to not just what are we doing but what is the impact of what we're doing what has it led to in terms of a change in conditions within that space that have improved circumstances for for students and staff of color what has it resulted in and that conversation isn't happening i think one of the benefits of things like the race equality charter is because actions are happening internally within organizations and things that are happening hopefully are not communicated to those within the organization very well often it's helpful to have some point of accountability and some point of challenge 
And I think the Rose Equality Charter offers that to universities. It offers them a framework for assessing the work that they're doing, making sure that there is evidence for the work that they're doing and being clear on what that evidence is, having that external scrutiny. I think it's one of the reasons why not many universities have gone for the Race Equality Charter because it requires them to actually evidence the work that they're doing. I don't know what happens when that work isn't evidence in terms of there is clearly a reward that comes with doing things like Athena Swan and the, and the Race Equality Charter, but it's not tied to any consequence they're not engaging with that work. So there isn't funding that you lose. There isn't any like institutional status that you lose if you don't engage with it or if you engage with it poorly, et cetera. So you can have institutions that have been trying to go for the Race Equality Charter for the last four or five years and haven't been successful in either even attaining a bronze, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't affected their reputation in any way. It hasn't affected their funding in any way. And so it, doesn't necessarily still need to be a priority for them. And I think that's my biggest worry with anything that's sort of a charter mark or an award is it gives organisations an incentive on how to move forward, but it doesn't give them any form of consequence for not engaging with it. So it's not mandatory. And if if those sorts of things are not mandatory, then an organisation doesn't have to do it. And if they do do it, they can do it in a purely performative way. And then say, this is what we're striving towards and continue to put that into their statements. Yeah. So I think for me, that's, that's the biggest worry. But as you said, there are positive things that are happening. So let's have a focus on, on those <laughs> for a little bit. Because I think we can be really cynical and critical about everything that's going on. Um, but I wanted to just try and highlight some of the, the positives. There has been some really good work, I feel like, happening in Haiti around decolonizing the curriculum. I do think the term can sometimes be co-opted and used inappropriately. But have you seen any examples within your particular discipline around decolonizing the curriculum happening and working well? And what does that look like? Okay, so this is where you're more positive than I am, I think, because I've <laughs> seen I've no, I've seen I've seen people I've seen people want to engage with it. I had conversations with people who want to understand more about how we can actually do that uh, within the subject. But I think there's there's almost a bit of a, or sometimes anyway, a bit of a misunderstanding about what that actually means. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, where we get the eye rolling thing, right? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of people are in the the, the camp where, okay, let's, let's put more pictures of Black people in our PowerPoint slides. Mm. Okay, well, that's, first of all, that's actually really important. And you probably should think about you know, diversifying the images that you choose or how you represent people in, in, in the teaching that you do. But it's, it's a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so some examples that I gave from, uh, from my own subject, from psychology, you know, when I, when I studied psychology, well, I wasn't told at all about the fact that most of the people who uh, invented the statistical techniques that I was studying did so to prove that people like me were, you know, intellectually inferior, right? They were mm-hmm. all eugenicists, yeah? So it's teaching... Um, the subject from a very white western perspective and can we not do that can we broaden our i guess cultural perspectives from which we teach our subject so it's little things Mm -hmm. like that so you know i I haven't really got any examples of people doing that so much but again the conversations this year uh after george floyd and the whole uh black lives matter summer uh were very much focused on that and people wanting to do more so you know i think as a as a first step 
I think people are really engaging with it and actually wanting to do it and wanting to understand a little bit more how they can do that sort of thing is yeah. is, is is really important and is really encouraging as well. So yeah. I have been encouraged by that. It is it is certainly positive. Yeah, and I think there have been lots of different reviews of curriculum over mm-hmm. the years, whether that yeah. is multicultural curriculum and trying to diversify it in that way. Mm-hmm. And there have been various things that have been done in the past, but I think this is the first time people have realised that in order for the curriculum to change, those that are delivering the curriculum need to do some work as well. Mm-hmm. So there's been some focus, some. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, before you get to the stage where you can really take that action, you need to understand just how white and Western-centric your curriculum actually is. Because if mm-hmm. you don't even see it, like if you don't notice, then you're not going to be motivated to change it. So part of the, you know, I guess the, the first step is really educating people or kind of getting people to look at their curriculum and really notice just how white it is Mm -hmm. like just how white centric and and, and western centric it is because i think people just generally just kind of go through life just totally oblivious to that fact um but absolutely like i say again conversations around that and okay how can i do this like how what can i what can i do what should i be looking at um and, and hearing people have those conversations is really encouraging yeah absolutely and not just how white is it in terms of representation? Because mm. are, are these just all white men in our reading list, for example? Mm-hmm. But asking the question of what are the narratives that are constantly being perpetuated through our curriculum? Like how are black people being positioned? If you are teaching psychology and you're making sure that um, the, the canons of knowledge within that particular discipline are all eugenicists, what are you approving in terms of knowledge? Yeah. and how particular subjectivities have been framed. Like, how, What are you legitimising within that space and what could be an alternative? Asking those particular questions. Even within schools, I was, I was having a conversation with some teachers who were adamant that they didn't want to remove Of Mice and Men because it was one of um, the few books, according to them, that made reference to racial tensions. Mm-hmm. And I said, there's some truth to that and absolutely there's some educational benefit to exploring those themes but you have to ask the question of why are the, the, the texts that are included within the school curriculum that reference race positioning black people in a particular way? Yeah, like, I, re- I read that book. I read that book in high school. I remember reading that book. Absolutely. And there's, there's a lot of characters. There's Off Mice and Men, there is To Kill a Mockingbird, so on and so mm. forth, where there are black characters who are positioned in a particular way. And it, yeah. it's not about removing those texts, but it's about asking educators to really question what is the narrative that is constantly being perpetuated in those texts and what power do you have mm-hmm. in the classroom to yeah. challenge that yeah and like and, you say what alternatives are there what alternative narratives are there that we could explore yeah but you will always get people that will say it's going to it's going to mean removing texts and we can't remove shakespeare <laughs> we can't remove learning about henry the eighth and winston churchill in history yeah. we can't remove learning about Freud in, in psychology, etc. Mm. How do we get people to understand that this isn't about removing those key texts, but thinking critically about what we're teaching? Right. Well, in the context of statue gate, this is a really <laughs> difficult one, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it, to me, it's obvious, like nobody's asking you to never mention Winston Churchill again, mm. because he was a massive racist. All we're asking you to do is acknowledge that he was also a massive racist mm. you know it's like you know no one's asking you to remove anything and I, I, like i say to me it's really obvious like nobody's saying that you know 
like take the Colston statue, for example, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe we shouldn't be celebrating slave traders and slave owners, mm-hmm. right? Now, the statue is a part of history, right? Yeah. Nobody's saying that we should rewrite history and destroy all of those statues and never speak of those people again. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is we should look at them, warts and all, and you know, yeah. put put that statue in a museum with a plaque explaining exactly what Colston was about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's seeing things from multiple perspectives. Nobody's trying to take Churchill away from you. Nobody's trying to take uh, Shakespeare away from you. Yeah. It's can we look at these things with a, a much broader lens? Yeah. But there's always going to be a backlash to that. And the backlash is, well, you're trying to rewrite history. You're trying to take away this. You're trying to that. It's like, well, you have to think about who wrote history in the first place. Yeah. You have to think about where these these narratives come from. And again, to me, it's obvious. And, and, and I don't really know how to to explain it other than to say that, you know, no, no one's trying to take away anything yeah. from you. It feels like there is a battle between those who are really protective of some sort of British history mm. that they believe is untainted yeah. and they want to keep it untainted and they don't want anybody who wants to show the, the light and shade to, mm. to do that. And then you have others who want to completely derase everything mm. by just completely removing it and erasing it and, and um, taking it away so that we, ne- we never speak about it again and I think yeah. both of those positions are really problematic because then you've yeah. got well no we need to acknowledge this we need to have a conversation about it it's not invisible but at the same time there is good and bad in all history mm-hmm. and we have to have a conversation about the good and bad in all history and on a very local level this was conversations that were happening in Sheffield over the last few months where people were talking about the need to remove street names because they were named after slave owners, they were named after um, colonized lands, they were mm-hmm. they were named after a sort of the the Commonwealth spaces that were that were that were taken. And my response to them was, first of all, not many people in the city know the origins of these street names, so it would be mm-hmm. really helpful to educate people. There's an educational opportunity on the street names. Yeah. The other is why remove it? What is the impact of those street names being there? And I think that's one of the things that we've, we see in terms of performativity is there's an impulse to work on something rather than working on something else. Right. And the focus on statues, the focus on street names, et cetera, shifts the focus away from what is the work that we could be doing that's going to make an impact mm-hmm. to the, the lived experiences of people of color within those spaces. What we're doing about our healthcare system, what we're doing yeah. about supporting people through um, with mental health needs, what are we doing about education, et cetera. I'm not saying this work on street names doesn't have to happen, but it's about asking that question of, if you do change these street names, what is going to be the impact in terms of the change in mm. those conditions, as opposed to what's happening right now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, like you say, the, these things are important, but they're also just distractions from the work mm. that actually has a, a genuine impact because changing a street name I, I mean first of all I've lived here for 20 years and I don't know any street names I, exactly. I, I, I navigate via landmark marks um, exactly but, um, and what's really problematic Peter and I don't know if you've seen this but they there was an attempt um, to honor the Windrush generation and mm-hmm. to acknowledge their experiences by naming a street Windrush and this is one of the, the problems with performativity is, first of all, it wasn't a street. They named an alleyway. 
it was an alleyway that nobody sees behind the um so the the, the center for african and african community so sadaka within yeah. the city that you may have heard of literally behind it so the positioning in terms of the community being able to see the alleyway but nobody else being able to see the alleyway as a city that the fact that that decision was made yeah and then alongside that there's a conversation happening about how do we remove all of the other street names that may be problematic or deemed to be problematic by people that are racialized as white that are sitting in a room and making this decision mm-hmm. for me is really worrying because it doesn't align in any way with what the reality of living yeah. in the city is and what we, the experience we, of that was there something about a statue as well about honoring um like sheffield's contribution to the to abolishing the slave trade was it was it well, they did, about that as well? they did sort of an analysis of the city and they concluded that Sheffield wasn't explicitly involved in the slave trade because there weren't any statues or monuments of it, but that there were, in fact, statues of abolitionists um, of the slave trade and that they needed to be highlighted and, and honoured mm. as well. And that, I think there was a request for there to be a statue made of the women's suffragette movement and their response to abolishing slavery but then there was a huge backlash from the community that it was a statue that was honouring white women. Yeah, yeah, I thought I remember in, in that this, now. In this work, um, so again, it's it. Those are sort of examples of I feel I feel pitfalls in yeah. allyship where there is an attempt to do work, but it's considering the sort of intention behind the work without actually thinking about the impact of the work that we need to do. So we've had a year. We've had a year of conversations, we've had a year of learning, we've had a year of intense exposure because Mm -hmm. of COVID-19 and the disproportionate impact, because of the conversations that we've been seeing, because of trauma being displayed and being performed um, in, in lots of different spaces. So we've had a year and I feel like people are taking this time now to pause and really reflect and think we haven't come nearly as far as we could have in that year what can we do moving forward so what advice would you give to individuals and also to organizations in what they can do with what they've learned over the last year to to start to move forward i think on a on an individual basis one of the things that people can do is to learn and i mean really learn the language around race and racism because before you can have really meaningful conversations about this sort of thing, whether that's on an individual one-to-one basis with a family member or a friend, or whether that's at work or, or whatever, before you can have a meaningful conversation that actually goes somewhere, you have to understand how to have these conversations. You, you, you know, you said it's been a year of learning, but despite all of the resources out there, despite all of the the, the stuff on Twitter, the John Amici video about white privilege, all of that stuff. People still, I'm, I'm still now having conversations debating whether or not white privilege is really a thing or should we talk about it this way or it's really offensive to use that term, you know, and, and I'm still having those conversations. And, and, and that just puts a, a stop on anything meaningful happening when people yeah. get so defensive at the mere mention of race or the mere mention of privilege or, or, or anything like that. So really understanding the language of the topic yeah. uh, and being able to communicate ideas. Uh, and for, 
you know, again, the people you, you talk about as allies, being able to do that without the black person in the room, you know, having the language to be able to really communicate what it is that you are trying to communicate is just vital. So before you're trying to do any of the work, make sure that you understand the, the language of it. I, I think that is that is absolutely number one. And, yeah. and the second thing is it, it's going to be uncomfortable and you have to just be prepared to be uncomfortable. You know, I've said this to a few people, you, you might lose friends over it over having these conversations you might fall out with family members over it and if you're not prepared to do that then you're not ready to be involved mm. in this conversation and that might seem harsh but it's yeah. absolutely true if you're not prepared to fall out with friends if you're not prepared to be the person in the room that says do you know what I'm going to stand up and I'm going to challenge that and it might mm. make me unpopular but I'm still going to do it anyway then like I said you're not ready to be in in that conversation so yeah. You know, learning the language and really just being prepared to be uncomfortable and try it out, you mm. know, have the, because I'm not saying that I know everything. I know very, very little. I learn something new every day. But having these conversations over the past year or so mm. has really, really made me reflect and has developed my ability to articulate some of these ideas and I change the way that I explain things or change the, the way that I have conversations just through having the conversations. So you have to start yeah. having the conversations uh, in order to learn how to do it more effectively, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think you're right. It's, it's about finding that balance. And it is a hard balance to find mm. between the urgency of needing to do the work and nothing ever substituting from the work. It has to translate into action, but mm. being ready for that action and doing the foundational work that you need in order to prepare to be able to engage in, in that in that well is, is, is fundamentally important. And I agree with you, and this is for everybody. We sometimes talk about this preparatory work needing to happen for people that are racialized as white, but we all need to develop our racial literacy. We can't have the assumption that lived experience of being impacted by racism means we have the language to be able to name it and challenge it within those spaces as well. So I agree with your language, looking at allies, you can translate that into action. I'd also add on to that, paying attention to power and how you choose to use your power, mm. because there have been so many opportunities over the last year that I feel where power could have been used and it wasn't. Yeah. And, and people made the choice, even in their commitments, even in their sort of performance of allyship, they made the choice to step out when they should have been stepping in. Mm -hmm. And so just being mindful of how we choose to use our power is, is really important as well. What about to the institutions? We've both been super critical of institutions. Yeah. What advice would we give them on how to move forward? I guess my, my one piece of advice would be to just listen listen to the experiences of the people of color within your organization because again there's this sort of rush to well here's our response to these sort of worldwide events and here's what we think about them and here's some of the things that we're doing and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do this and then like i'm sat there you know gobbing off on twitter about it because i have no other <laughs> outlet thinking well like this is it's not it's not sufficient if you'd asked somebody about this statement, but there was one in particular, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was one statement in particular that went out. Was it the anniversary or was it before that? I can't remember, but I was just, I read it and I just thought, oh, if you just asked someone, if you yeah. just asked someone first, I would have said, right, don't say that. 
Mm. probably don't say that don't do this there was another one as well there was um it's a really good example from the union who Mm. and i think this might have been the anniversary they proposed some sort of twitter event where people would record themselves taking the knee and upload it to twitter with the hashtag and this this went out i think this was this wasn't a hallam thing this was like a a university what this is a union thing and i just thought oh my god don't do that like First of all, logistics, like how do you take a video of yourself taking the knee? Mm. Like what what face do you like? Do you smile? Do you do like a serious face? Like what's it supposed to be like? Like, do you film yourself kneeling down and then standing up and stuff? Like, so logistics-wise, it was just stupid. But I just thought of all the performative just nonsense, like just don't yeah. do that. But if you just asked somebody first or like yeah. actually listened to the voice, like, I'm pretty sure that most people would have said, that's a really awful idea probably don't do that so you know you you have to listen you have to listen and you have to stop with the whole showing off look at these shiny things and like you said before Muna it's about okay well what are we actually doing that's having as an actual impact on the staff and the students and their day-to-day experiences working and studying in this institution like let's focus on that let's not worry about the box ticking and if you are really genuinely concerned about those people, the students and the staff that work for you, yeah. then that's what you would be doing. Yeah. But all of these kind of things that go on in the background, which we don't actually know about and don't make any difference to our lives, like that just tells me that you don't actually care. What you care about is your nice shiny badge. Yeah, absolutely. And making sure that that is a commitment that is followed through in actions that actually result in change for those that you're doing this work for and it it goes back to what you said listen listen to when people tell you what what they need do the work according to what they are telling you is the need and then feed it back to them if it's not communicated back to those who are affected is a constant reminder that this is performance that this is outward facing etc and one of the things that institutions don't do nearly well enough is build that relationship with people that they are claiming to be doing this work with. So relationship building, making it a core commitment, a priority across your institution. And that means resourcing it. That's a tricky one. Not many organizations resource it and dedicate the time to make it a priority. And I think another point that I would really encourage organizations to do over the next year would be to create a community in doing this work. Talk to other people within your sector because there are examples of good practice that are out there and people are just not talking to each other. I often find in my work where when I'm working with universities and they are trying to develop ideas from scratch, I'm going into those spaces saying, this isn't a unique idea that you're coming into the space with. Other organizations have done this or there are other examples of good practice you should collaborate with and you should build a community. And that's that's the same across all sectors. But we work in silos Mm. and that's never going to be helpful in work that's around equity because you can't measure impact if you think you're the only person that's doing it and you're only measuring it from your own frame of reference. Mm. So there's there's a lot that organisations need to do. I think our reflections of the last year have been one where, I think you might agree with me, Pete, it's been an exhausting year in a number of different ways. It has been an eye-opening year, for me in particular, about what what institutions in particular are willing to do or unwilling to do. And we are, one thing that we haven't mentioned, 
is the fact that this work has started or the catalyst for this work has started over the last year and a half in the midst of a political context that has never felt more resistant to this work yeah. with that additional layer on top of it too we've we've got some work to do over the next year and much more after that too yeah. but fingers crossed things will improve <laughs> i feel like we need to end this on a much more positive note so give me sort of one positive thing that you would say has come out of the last year and then i will do the same we'll we'll leave the viewers with one bit of positivity to end the season <laughs> Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go back to my area because I'm my, my background's in sport, mm-hmm. and the one thing that I have found just so encouraging this year is that sport has kept this conversation alive and has kept this mm-hmm. conversation going, like amongst other things, obviously. But you know, in 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 a, in a situation where things started to maybe go back to normal a little bit, obviously we're back in lockdown again. <laughs> we were back in lockdown again, but things started to get back to normal a little bit and kind of the conversations drifted and people sort of started thinking about going on holiday and, and what have you, but it was athletes and coaches and sport who really kept this conversation going. So you had the premier league players taking a knee and they are still doing that now mm. and they're getting booed for it and they are still yeah. doing it. And that's just really tremendously encouraging and you've got the protests in the WNBA and the NBA um, you know players with slogans on their shirts instead of their their names and you know really bringing these conversations to the forefront and keeping them fresh in people's minds and I'm, I'm so encouraged by the fact that they aren't bowing to the pressure and they aren't bowing to the idiots who are booing them for taking a knee and I'm kind of really proud I guess of of athletes and coaches who are essentially willing to put themselves on the line because they're willing to face that backlash uh, in order to do something that is really, really important to them and for us as well. So that's been a a huge positive for me, seeing people involved in sport, really just keeping this conversation going, even in the face of of a backlash from from fans. Yeah, absolutely. I think within education, it's similar, but the backlash isn't from fans, it's from the, the political context that we're mm. in, where I feel as though the, the target of focus in terms of how resistant they are to critical race theory and anti-racism work has been pointed firmly in the direction of education. And so now more than ever, it is important that this work takes place within educational settings, but I, I think it's now where it comes with the greatest amount of risk as well. So I have a huge amount of respect for school leaders for uh, universities, for for colleges that are leading in this work, that are saying we're committed, we're going to follow through and and that are meaningfully engaging with it. There aren't many, I'll be honest with you, that are doing that, but the ones that are, are doing it knowing that they don't have the infrastructure and support around them nationally to be able to to deal with the, the challenges that are going to come their way. And there will be challenges that come their way. And it's now why this work really requires a community because we don't have legislative support. We don't have a government that is ever going to be willing to endorse this work. And we don't have systems that are designed for this work. So it's yeah. it's not easy, but those that are showing up, I think are doing it with a knowing that there are risks and it will come with sacrifice. And that's a testament to their commitment. So I'm hopeful that this isn't just momentum that is going to die down. It's, it's continuing on. And there are people willing and listening and, and, and wanting to do that work. Hopefully, 
those numbers increase over the next year and we see a lot less performance and a lot more measurable impact of the change that we're, we're, we're wanting to see. But I'm pretty sure that you and me will continue to critique on Twitter <laughs> and hopefully continue to highlight some of these issues as well and, and carry on the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure talking to you. But we'll definitely have you back on to, to talk probably about more positive things. But, but thank you for coming on and, and give, helping me sort of wrap up the season and giving an overview of what we've all experienced over the last year and hopefully moving forward into a new year with positive change. No, well, thank you for having me on. It's been a, a really interesting conversation. And yeah, I'm really glad that, that we ended with a few positives as well. What was really evident from the conversation with Dr. Olashova was how resistant we still are to fully engaging with this work. And by we, I'm talking about the organisations and the institutions that we have around us. This year has been a year of turmoil in a number of ways. It has been a year of disturbance, a year of fracture, and it has been a year of action. And there has been some positive action, but there also has been some action that's been directed towards performance. In our conversation, we named some of the ways in which performance had taken place. And we also tried to highlight some examples of good practice, but it's clear that much work is still to be done. These conversations are nowhere near close to being over. We need to continue to be reflective. We need to ask those difficult questions. We need to lean in to the discomfort and we need to be honest about where we're heading and where we want to be heading. The questions that we've been asking over the last year on the podcast have been about how we position ourselves, but it's also important that we hold the organizations and the institutions that we are a part of to account. How far have we actually come in the last year Take a moment to really ask that question and see if there has been direct measurable impact of the conversations we've been having over the last year in the spaces that you work within and in the social spaces that you gather. What really has changed? My hope is that the podcast has offered a space for reflection and will continue to offer a space for reflection. I close off season one by asking you to please revisit the conversations we've been having on this podcast and in other spaces over the last year to take some time to really build on your self-awareness and your self-reflexivity and then to think into the spaces that you're working within and ask, what can I do to make a tangible, measurable difference in the spaces where I hold influence and in the spaces where I hold power? Thank you so much for engaging with the podcast and we look forward to seeing you for season two. You've been listening to Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast.